Knudsen. I grew up at Christ Church, and it's my joy now to raise my three boys at, at the church. Uh, it's also a joy to be a faith mentor in children's ministry. I'm Wyatt, and I'm in sixth grade, and I go to Cal. I'm Luke, and I'm in second grade. My name is Robbie, and I'm in second grade. And I'm Sherry, and I am so blessed to be part of family ministry here at Christ Church, and I lead the children's ministry. And we just wanted to say, Welcome to Worship! Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice 
Good morning. Would you please join me in the call to worship? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Seek the peace of God that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Today we choose God's peace. Today we place our trust in God. Turn your hearts away from the distractions and disappointments of life that flow in and out like the tide. Set your minds on him who is worthy and worship the Lord who loves you and cares for you deeply. We come to worship God alone and worthy of praise. join me in a word of prayer. Father, we adore you. We marvel at the depth of your love and the wonders of your grace. We are in awe the beauty of your creation, for you are almighty. You're holy, you're beautiful, you are full of mercy. We are privileged to be called your children. We welcome your spirit among us today. Lord, darkness, sin, and death are under your feet. You are victorious. And so we come before you as a loving father and we seek your forgiveness today for lives that do not always honor you. Forgive us when we get so carried away with the busyness of our days that we don't pause to think about how you are the creator and provider of everything we have. Forgive us when we allow the stresses and demands of work and family and an endless news cycle to wear away at our gratitude and hope. Forgive us when we're caught up in conflict and frustration, when we refuse to listen to any opinion but our own, and when we are blind to see others as your precious children. Forgive us when we seek to be fulfilled by the things of this world instead of feasting on the truth of your word. Forgive us when we desire wrong things, when we are tight-fisted with our possessions, apathetic to justice, and seek to love ourselves more than our neighbor. Father, you alone are love. You alone are hope. You alone are forgiveness. You and your righteousness alone are all we really need. 
And so hear our confession this day and forgive us and embrace us as your children through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Friends, hear these words, these confident, assuring words from the prophet Isaiah as a reminder of your forgiveness and God's love for you today. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. We esteemed him not yet. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And friends, by his wounds, you are healed. Walk in the light of his forgiveness and his love this day. Amen. Lord, good morning, and it's good to be with you another day as I come to you in prayer this morning and I walk my neighborhood, I just think of my neighbors. And Lord, I just ask that my family and I would live beyond the confines of our own yard, that we would live beyond our own worries and our own anxieties. Lord, you know we have those. But Lord, I also think as I pass by these houses and I know the stories in these houses, that you would meet their needs, that I would, my family and I would meet their needs as you enable us, as you prompt us. And Lord, may we be aware of your promptings. May we have true eyes to see our neighbors, perhaps as we haven't before. May we hear and listen to their stories. And may we follow your leading in their lives. Lord, we know, and I know the stories in some of these houses, the anxiety, the, the pressure of having kids in school and mom and dad working full-time jobs. Lord, we're experiencing that in our own house, as you know. And there's lots of questions. There's lots of doubts. There's lots of fears. But Lord, may we be a presence to this neighborhood to show them the hope and the peace and the love that only you can give, that you demonstrate. Lord, I ask that we as a community of faith would see our neighbors and not just see them, we would live to love them and respond to them and be your hands and your feet to them. We thank you and we love you, Lord. Amen. Please bow your heads and join me in reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. 
Well, good morning once again. How good does it feel to officially, for those of you especially that are in the room, to be back for in-person worship this morning? We are thrilled to be officially open this week. And what's so exciting is not only are we open today for both of our services, both here and at our Butterfield location, but we are joining churches across Chicagoland, people of God across Chicagoland who are counting today as Back to Church Sunday. So friends, you are in good company being here with us this morning, and I think that is something we can be grateful for. Of course, we are going to continue to worship online, and so if you are joining us from the comforts of your own home, your living room, a coffee shop, wherever you may be, we are so thrilled that you are joining us as well this morning, and we will continue to offer our in-person, in-person and online worship as we go throughout this season. Of course, if you are joining us for the first time, whether you are online or you are here in the room with us, we want to extend a special welcome to you. We are so glad you chose to spend your Sunday morning with us. For those of you who are worshiping online, if you would like to come back and try this and and join us, we want you to know that we have put a lot of safety protocols in place, procedures, and thought into what it looks like to rejoin us for worship. And so if you would like to learn a little bit more about what that looks like, feel free to follow the link on your screen. Or if you are here in person today and just want to know a little bit more about what that looks like, feel free to check out our website a little bit later. We have done the very best we know how to do and are continuing to work at making this a safe and comfortable environment for everyone who walks in our doors. Just a few notes about in-person worship. Uh, As we adhere to safety guidelines, we do have to limit the amount of worshipers that we have each and every Sunday in the building. And so to that end, we will open um, registration uh, on Sundays at noon. And so when you go home today or if you're at home, by the time you're eating lunch, the reservation system will be open. You can reserve a spot for you and your family for the following week of worship. Uh, In addition to remembering to grab a mask, maybe the most important thing you will have to remember is that you do need to register for worship each and every Sunday. So every time you want to come, go ahead and register for worship so we can plan for your arrival and make sure that we fit the seating capacities that we have here. We will also be offering children's programming for a limited number of children from uh, ages kindergarten through grade five. And that registration process opens, or I'm sorry, it closes uh, Fridays at 9 a.m. So if you are a parent or a grandparent and you want to have a kiddo join you, just go ahead and register them by 9 a.m. on Friday morning so we can make sure that we prepare for their arrival as well. And lastly, we know both of our services here at Classic and our 1045 Contemporary Service has filled up pretty quickly. And so we are working on what it will look like to add additional services in the weeks to come. And we will update you on that in our weekly email update. And so you can check that out or um, subscribe to that or check our website for more details as well. Well, in addition to our worship services, we have a few other gatherings and events coming up actually pretty soon that we want uh, you to be aware of. This Tuesday, we start Financial Peace University that will uh, kick off via Zoom at 7 p.m. We have our Women's Worship Night that is going to take place here at our Oak Brook campus out in the parking lot for a great uh, night of worship and prayer. Um, That's this Thursday, and we're partnering with the Missions Department to help fill our supply and food drives. And so if you can bring a donation with you, that would be wonderful. And then on Monday, October 5th, we are um, kicking off our 43rd annual Men's golf outing. So thank goodness we can do a sport outside during this season. So if you're a man and you're interested in doing that, we would love to have you on that as well. Of course, you, as always, you can check out any of these events on our website and learn more about what that looks like to come. 
You know, one of the reasons that we create these opportunities, uh, they're not just for those of us that call Christ Church home, we love to gather together and we love to do that, but there are also our places where we can invite neighbors. And there may be people listening who are not part of our church community who just want to learn a little bit more about what we do here and what it looks like to be part of this faith journey. And so that's why we do what we do. We want people to feel welcome, known, and loved. And so when you give a financial gift to the church, you are helping to make these things happen. You're helping to create spaces of community. You are helping hurting neighbors. You are helping resources, missionaries, and good work that is happening throughout the world. And we, uh, when we do that, we serve people here, near, and far with the life-changing love of Jesus Christ. And so we are going to continue our worship this morning. I'm going to invite you, if you would uh, like to be part of that work, we would be grateful. And you can give a gift now, either um, by giving on our website, by texting the number on our screen. Of course, you're always welcome to drop off a gift at either of our locations or mail it. Uh, and for those of you who are present in the room, we will also have some baskets on the way out that you may drop a gift in as well. Whatever you choose, know that you matter, your giving matters, every uh, gift matters to us and it matters to the Lord and so we thank you for that and we are going to continue our worship now as we receive our tithes and our offerings.
It is a very special joy to be with all of you today, wherever you may happen to be, and to be joining our hearts together in worshiping this God of whom we've just been singing. And uh, I am especially happy to have this opportunity to kick off what I hope will be one of the most uh, profound and and, uh, impactful message series that we've done here at Christ Church that we have simply entitled The Jericho Road. It's interesting, isn't it, how certain streets have these associations that go with them. When I say to you, Pennsylvania Avenue, what do you think of? Chances are you're thinking of politics and of the president. Or if I say Michigan Avenue or Fifth Avenue, I'm imagining that you're going to be picturing shopping and commerce. Uh, The term Bourbon Street has become synonymous with partying in our time, Broadway with a theater and Hollywood Boulevard with movie stars. But what about the phrase Jericho Road? What does that bring to mind for you? Some of you, I imagine, are going to say, well, the Good Samaritan, and you would be right. That is the context for that particular address. But I'm hoping and praying that by the end of the series that we embark upon together today that you're going to actually see that Jericho Road as about something even more than that, about life the way it really is and the way it really can be if we let God into our hearts and let Him transform and reshape us and send us in the ways that Jesus came to commission. Of all of the very stories that Jesus told, none is so famous as this one. Even above the prodigal son story, this is the story most widely known across the world from the catalog of Jesus' teaching. Many, many people at least know some of the details of what happened along that particular thoroughfare. And over the next several weeks, we're going to take a deeper dive than maybe you've ever gone before into this story. We're going to unpack its meaning for our lives. We're going to think about each one of the significant characters that we meet along that route, and you are going to find our world there. You're going to see that Jesus was painting a picture of our world there. You're going to find yourself there. We're going to find each other there. And we're going to find hope there. We're going to find a vision that is needed in our time so desperately of the kingdom of God for which Jesus came. This is going to be one of the most relatable and relevant series we've done in a long time. But before we experience the story we need to understand the setting. In fact, if you don't fully get the setting, you can't actually get fully the meaning of the story that Jesus tells because the story of what happened along the Jericho Road is actually not just an interesting account, it is an inspired answer to one of the most important questions, to one of the most revealing questions that has ever been asked by another human being. Listen, Listen with me to the Word of God as it comes from Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I want to press pause right there and just make sure we really get what's going on in this crucial verse. Because the setting for the most famous story that Jesus ever told, is the life orientation. It is the attitude of this man. This is the reason for the story. Is the particular way of thinking and being that this particular person describes. It is very important that we understand this guy because the way he looks at life is the whole point of the story. Okay? This is crucial that we understand him. So what do we know about him? Well, first of all, we know that this person is an expert in the law. 
Now in the first century, that term the law didn't refer to the civil law so much as the theological law. The term the law was shorthand for God's law, sometimes called the Pentateuch, which literally meant the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in other words, this guy is somebody who was a student of the Bible. He was somebody who had spent a lot more time than the average person studying the Scriptures, trying to understand what it meant to live according to the standards of God. And in that sense, he's like you. And he's a little like me. Because you have also set yourself to the purpose of understanding God's standards as described in the Bible, as evidenced by the fact that you are here today, instead of out on the golf course, or on a bike ride, or doing any one of the other things that some 83% of the rest of the American populace is doing right now, according to recent surveys. Now, you probably don't consider yourself an expert in the law. That's a wonderful uh, act of humility that you don't even think of yourself as anything like an expert. Maybe that's why you're here today, because you know you're not. You want more of an understanding of God's purposes, but this particular person we meet in the story does consider himself something of an expert. We know that not just because the Bible describes him that way, but because of what he does next. The verse says, and I quote, he stood up to test Jesus. Now, in ancient times, In the Middle East, it was the normal practice of teachers to sit down while they were teaching. They would often sit on the ground, and their their students would sit on the ground around them, attending to what the teacher was saying. And if the student had a question, uh, that student would then stand up before speaking, not just simply to be recognized. Actually, that wasn't what it was for at all. The reason you stood up was as a sign of respect for the teacher. It was the same reason, by the way, that President Abraham Lincoln used to stand up during church. It was a puzzlement to the preacher at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church where Lincoln attended worship regularly. Why, when the prayer time came, the president always stood up? And Finally, the preacher asked, Mr. President, why do you do this? And Lincoln responded, well, when my uh, officers come before me, my generals appear before me uh, to, to speak with me, they always stand in my presence as a sign of respect. And I thought that when I was in the presence with my commander in chief, I should do no less. It was not, however, for this reason that the expert in the law stood up. He was out to test Jesus, the scriptures say. That's ironic. The the student was out to test the teacher. I don't know if you've seen that kind of phenomenon going on. It goes on all the time. You'll find reporters who will ask difficult questions trying to trap politicians in contradictions. You will see litigators trying to to, to probe with with tricky questions, witnesses on the stand in order to trap them in a lie. You will see interviewers sometimes trying to snare a celebrity into making a confession that they're pregnant or that something else is going on. We see this kind of testing going on all the time, and this is what's happening right here. Elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, we're even told, and I quote again, keeping a close watch on Jesus, the religious leaders sent spies who pretended to be sincere, and they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. So this is the second really important thing that we need to understand about the setting of the story here. This guy who, this entire tale that Jesus is about to spin um, is aimed at reaching. This guy is unusually religious first. He's unusually seasoned in having looked at God's law. But he is not really the sincere student 
that he pretends to be, at least not a sincere student of Jesus. The Greek word mathetes, which we often translate in the New Testament as disciple, literally means continual learner. Earnest, eager, sincere, continual learner. That's what a disciple was. That's what most of the people sitting on the ground around Jesus that day probably were. And if you and I are disciples of Jesus ourselves, then we're going to continually be opening ourselves to the possibility that the things that Jesus knows, that Jesus wants from us, that Jesus is calling us to, that we haven't yet gotten. And we're humbly available to the possibility that he wants to transform us further than we're already been influenced. This story shows us, however, that sometimes even very bright, even very religiously oriented people stop being sincere learners and start being litmus testers. Sometimes People stop being open to the new information that God is trying to impress upon them in order to further his transforming work in them and through them in the world, and they start testing everything and everyone against what they already know. And if it doesn't fit what they already know, they don't take it in. They can be in the presence of God. And they say in response, oh, that can't be. And the student assumes the place of the teacher. That reality, that tendency, that possibility is part of the crucial context of this remarkable story Jesus will go on to tell. I think it's scary that that could happen. I find that personally alarming to me when I think about the possibility that I could be an expert in the law, that I could be somebody who's studied the Bible a lot, been around church a lot, and still be sealed against what God is actually trying to say to me and do to me and in me and through me. And so... I come to this particular story this month asking, trying to ask sincerely, am I the guy? Am I this guy in the story? I mean, what evidence can I point to in my family life, in my politics, in my relations with people of other races and colors and cultures, in my leadership in my faith journey, what evidence can I point to that I am still very sincerely teachable? That it is more important for me to keep growing in righteousness than to be right already. What are the ahas that Jesus has provoked for me Lately. And if I cannot point to any, or if I can't point to at least a a few, then I probably need to sit down. And I probably need to sincerely pray for the humility to listen deeply to Jesus once more. How about you? A couple of weeks ago, uh, Tracy Bianchi preached a wonderful message on the subject of control. And she reminded all of us that this whole journey we've been on over the past months with COVID and with the social and racial unrest and uh, with now wildfires and so many other things is just, just this assault on our experience and our desire for control. Our hope, she reminded us, is in the fact 
that though we do not and cannot have all control, God is sovereign. God is working out his providential purposes in a way that may not fit our itinerary or our particular spreadsheet. You and I will find the peace that we're looking for in our time, not by clenching more tightly, but by trusting more deeply, making ourselves available to what new things he might have us be about. I needed that sermon myself. I don't know about you, but I find it very difficult sometimes to let go of control, to put my hope in something beyond my ability to manage everything, even sometimes my own salvation. And that tendency to seek control, to try and manage everything on our terms and our way, is also one of the other dimensions of the setting of this story. And it's illustrated, I think, in the question that the religious expert goes on to ask Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We've heard this question asked uh, or phrased in scriptures in church for so many years, so many of us, that for a lot of us, I don't think it strikes us as an unusual question. In fact, it seems to be an extremely good question. Isn't that what it's all about? Trying to get more of life, trying to get the life beyond this life, this seems like a very natural question. But in reality, it is a stupid question. It's a crazy question. What must I do to inherit How does one inherit anything? Is it by doing? Is it by doing? Or is it by simply being in relationship? Truthfully, we don't do ourselves into an inheritance. An inheritance is something we simply greatly, gratefully receive. You wait for something beautiful in someone else to do something bountiful to you and for you through their death, through their sacrifice. An inheritance is a gift of grace because of what somebody else has done. And this expert who is standing before Jesus, doesn't yet get this. He, he's out to test Jesus when if he really appreciated who he was standing in front of, who he was speaking with, he, he would be taking a very different attitude. He would be listening much more deeply, but Jesus nonetheless, in spite of his disrespect and his cluelessness, in spite of his ignorance and his insincerity, Jesus responds to him from the heart of God, which is always a good heart. And so Jesus just asks him a question in response to the original question. You're a legal expert, so, says Jesus, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, what have you learned about God? What have you learned about what God desires? Let's just start there. Let's begin right there. And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The expert was accurately quoting from the Pentateuch, from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament moral law he was actually accurately answering the question, and Jesus said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now what Jesus is saying in effect here is, to gain eternal life by your deeds, to, to, to gain eternal life by what you do, 
All you need to do is to completely and consistently fulfill the moral law. Just love God with everything you are and have. Totally. Just do that. All the time. And, and, and then just love other people in every situation of your life as you want to be loved. In fact, that's what eternal life is. And we could do weeks of study on that alone. That when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's, or the kingdom of the heavens, he's talking about the life of love. The kingdom of heaven is the place where God's perfect, self-giving love has invaded everything and permeated everyone and reconditioned every relationship and every action. That is the kingdom. It's a quality of life that can begin here that we would want to have in infinite quantity. In fact, there is no life we would want in infinite quantity that wasn't all about totally permeating love. Totally glorious love. So if you want to do it, if you want to get eternal life by your deeds, just be perfectly, perfectly, pervasively loving of God and of other people. Do you love that way? In the midst of, a, of the season we've been part of these past months, have you experienced yourself, have you been wowed by how amazingly loving you are towards all the voices and the personalities and the players of our world? Have you been overwhelmed and overflowing with the love of God? I haven't, I will be honest with you about that. I, I, I wish I, I were, I've tried, but I've fallen short. I just have not been able to keep my focus on God and honoring him in every way. I've not been able to, to, to treat even the people within my family and my closest network in the ways that I would like. I, I just have not been able to do it in the way that gives me any hope that I could earn my way into God's eternal favors. So how do I hope to gain eternal life? How do I, me, an expert in the law, how do I? And how, how do you? And the answer, I think, is by inheriting it. By receiving it gratefully from someone who does love perfectly. One of the most important messages that Jesus is trying to, 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 to bring in this story and throughout his entire ministry is that we do not justify ourselves before God. We cannot save ourselves from our own sins before God. We can't just force our way into the family of God on the basis of what we do. This is something God does for us. This is something God in his amazing grace expressed supremely in Christ's sacrificial death upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. This is something he out of his beautiful heart does for us. As St. Paul puts it, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by human works, so that no one could ever boast. How do you tell? How do you tell that you are sincerely receiving the inheritance God is giving, God is offering to you. How do you do it? 
How do you, what are the tells? What are the indicators that, that you're not stuck? That, 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 you're, that you're not self-sealed? That you're not like that guy? What would be the indicators of that? Well, I want to suggest that that your life or my life will become less and less about trying to justify ourselves by our good works or by our boasting and our achievements. It will become more and more about living out of this heart of, of humble gratitude for all we've been given. Christians will be the most grateful people on the planet. That will be one of the most amazing things about it. You'll know you're in the presence of a Christian because they will be living with this amazed sense of, wow, how did I receive so much from God? How did I inherit so much? Why me? Your heart and your hands, because of what you've received, will now turn around and be very, very open to other imperfect people. That's another mark. You'll you'll know the disciples of Jesus because their hands and hearts will be open in grace towards other people because of what God has done for them. You'll be eager to extend to people the kind of grace and self-giving love that you have received from Christ. You will be a lot less concerned than you ever were in the past about limiting your liabilities Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to the dialogue between Jesus and this expert in the law. Jesus has made it really clear, I think, though the man is struggling with this, that that to earn his way into eternal life, he would need to just love God and others perfectly. Do this and you will live. The man probably thinks, well, I'm pretty sure I've got the loving God part down. I mean, I keep the dietary laws, I keep the hygiene laws, I wear my mask, (laughs) I go to church, I go to the temple, I think that's loving God, check, but I'm not 100% certain about the neighbor part, so I need to find out a little bit more about that, I need to get clearer about what doing that whole neighbor part involves, and the text literally says, wanting to justify himself... He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And this is where the narrative gets really interesting. And this is where the narrative gets really personal for me and uncomfortable, maybe for you too. Scholar Ken Bailey says, as a good first century Jew, the expert expects Jesus to respond to his question with a list The Old Testament law is about a lot of lists. He expects him to respond with a list that he can manage. The list, he assumes, will include fellow Jews who keep the law. His neighbors are fellow Jews who keep the law the way he does. In fact, the Old Testament law explicitly read, and I quote, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall give slack to your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on that basis, most Jews reading that text concluded that the category of neighbor was limited to my own people. You get it? The ones who live next door, the the people closest to me. Never mind that in the very same chapter in Leviticus, the text reads right after that, the foreigners residing amongst you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. By the first century, when this encounter between Jesus and the man is happening, most Jews had completely forgotten that last part. They had completely forgotten that the standard of God's love was that generous and that self-giving and embracing that that it was that ambitious for the flourishing of all people. Most Jews had sort of just stopped hearing that part. It would take the 
unusual death of the most beautiful man who'd walked the earth, dying on a cross, proclaiming grace for even his crucifiers to convince a few of those Jews that maybe they'd missed out on all that God was asking. But meanwhile, most figured that the word neighbor couldn't possibly embrace those decadent Gentiles, and certainly not those deplorable Samaritans, and not a whole bunch of other people that were just obnoxious or difficult people. Thus, when the legal expert asks here, who is my neighbor, it's not because he's eager to have Jesus expand his moral vision. He asks the question in order to limit his liability. Can we just sort of get a little neighbor list here, Jesus? Can we limit it to to people that I mostly like or who mostly like me or who are mostly like me? Can being nice or generally polite or at least not outright uh, mean uh, satisfy that whole loving neighbor standard. I mean, I am cool with sharing uh, my snowblower with the family that lives next door. I'm speaking of myself now here. I'm good with that. I like those people. You know, we help each other out. But there's this guy on the other side of the fence whose mulberry tree drops all of these nasty little berries over our yard all the time, and he knows it, and we've told him, and he does nothing about it. And then there's that really weird guy who lives all by himself, who lives just over this way. I mean, I don't think you're talking about those guys, Jesus. You're not talking about those guys. Can we at least agree, Jesus, that certain people should not be loved because it would just encourage them to stay the way they are? I mean, we can agree on that, can't we? Jesus... And while we're at it, you know, there's some other things I've been wondering about. I, could you just give me just, just a little list here on what I actually need to do to qualify as a good child and as a, as a good spouse and as a good parent and as a good colleague and as a good Christian? And can we keep that list sort of short, Jesus, so I can manage it? So I can check it off. I wish that my natural instinct was to ask Jesus, what do you want of me that I haven't yet understood? How much more could I give to your kingdom's work? How much more like you might I become, Lord? But if I'm ruthlessly honest, my inclination is often to say, as the first man in this story effectively does, how little is acceptable? But I think sometimes, and I've been thinking this week especially, that if I could really take in all that God has done for me, If the wonder of the creation and of the cross and of the cascade of common graces that have utterly defined my life, that are the setting of my life, if I could really take in all of the ways that the self-giving love of God has watered my existence and allow that to seep more deeply into me, I think I might learn to live with a sense of robust responsibility, a eagerness to go out and do as Jesus does instead of this feeling of limited liability that so often overtakes me. Which is why I think I need to go. And and I hope you'll join me on a fresh walk with Jesus down the Jericho Road. Please pray with me. God, as we start this fall season, we sincerely 
want to grow as your disciples. We want to keep learning, to keep being transformed for the good purposes that you have ordained us to play in our families, our neighborhoods, our society, our world. By your Holy Spirit, God, please start to show us this week where we may have gotten stuck in a limited liability mindset and where you would have us exercise a more robust responsibility in extending a self-giving love like yours to others. Make us the neighbor who helps change for good the character of our neighborhood. In the name of Christ we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. up those who may have fallen down. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit go with you and continue to work within you and me that we might express to this world the love that made him long ago come to give his life for us all. So go in peace until we meet again and forevermore. Amen.